Well, this is a, an unenviable position I have in just the next moment or so, and that's to introduce Dr. Tom Schreiner. He will be our commencement speaker tonight, and you'll get a more formal introduction of Dr. Schreiner by uh, Jerry Ragg, Dr. Ragg here in just a few hours. So I want to be a little bit more personal if I can. He is the professor of New Testament interpretation and biblical theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also an elder and pastor at Clifton Baptist Church. I know his, his senior pastor very well, who's a dear friend. And looking at what I could or would say about Dr. Schreiner, it sends you on a few little uh, rabbit trails around the internet. And I found something on the website of their church that was so intriguing and so encouraging and such a ministry, I could not improve upon it. So I want to read you what he says, and I think that will also help us to be introduced to his, his sweet wife, Diane. Dr. Schreiner writes this. I trusted Christ through the witness of the person who is now my wife, Diane, at the age of 17. After my conversion, I immediately felt called to the ministry and have served as a teacher in three different schools and an elder at three in three different churches. And he goes on, God has blessed Diane and me with four children, Daniel, Patrick, John, and Anna. I did not know that you led Tom to the Lord. It's amazing. You know Dr. Schreiner at Mission Road, though you may not know that. And that is because, as you know, it took five years for us to work through our exposition of the book of Romans. And as we worked through that, the surest and most steady guide was my commentary on the book of Romans by Tom Schreiner. I found myself enjoying that exegetically, theologically, and I really mean this, at times literally weeping in my study from the glory of God in Christ that I saw through his pen. So whether you know it or not, you have heard very much of Dr. Tom Schreiner through my spiritual plagiarism of his book and his commentary in Romans. He's a dear friend and he's a friend of our seminaries and he was so kind uh, when uh, Jerry asked me a few months ago if uh, it was possible that we could ask Dr. Schreiner to come and minister to us at the seminary. Uh, he, I had a connection and was able to email him and uh, I don't know that you moved a trip to Australia, but you shuffled some things that you had in order to be with us. He is a dear friend of our seminary and a trusted friend of mine and a dear friend to our church. Can you please give an Expositors Seminary and Mission Road welcome to Dr. Tom Schreiner. Well, thank you so much, Rick, for that very kind welcome. What a joy and a delight it is for me to be here today with you. And I've heard so many wonderful things about Rick Holland's ministry. To be with the many other professors from Expositors is a delight as well and, and with this congregation. My text today is Galatians chapter 2 verses 15 through 21, Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually going to read 
um, Galatians 2, 11 through 21, but I'm going to focus on 15 through 21, but I will talk about 11 through 14 a little bit as well. So Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing those of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Father, we pray that our hearts and minds would be directed to your word. We pray that we would understand, that we would believe, and that we would be moved and changed by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our culture is awash today in questions of identity. Who are we? People discuss how our, our identity is tied to our ethnic background, our, our race, our, our gender. I'm not, I'm not going to engage in that very important discussion today, at least not directly. Instead, I want to look at the most fundamental element of our identity, and that is who we are in Jesus Christ. Our identity isn't fundamentally constituted by what we think of ourselves, but by what God thinks of us. In and of ourselves, our identity is fragile. Do you think your identity of yourself is fragile? It is. If you don't think that, you don't know yourself. Our view of ourselves can be easily shattered. Michael, if Michael Jordan's identity, I don't know him personally, 
If Michael Jordan's identity was in his ability to play basketball, he now faces questions about his purpose in life because he can't play basketball the way he did 20 years ago. If your identity is in your beauty, a day of reckoning is coming <laughs> because your beauty will not last. As Proverbs says in chapter 31, beauty is fleeting. If your identity is in your intellect or your skill, there are always people smarter than you. There are always people more skilled than you. We may face a crisis of identity if we're a student and you're suddenly transferred to a new school. That happened to me when I was a sophomore in high school. I thought I was sort of big stuff in my school, but I was transferred to a school where basically no one knew who I was. I was a nobody to 2,000 students at a new school. Or I just finished reading a fascinating biography of Napoleon. Napoleon's identity was shaped by his ability to conquer other peoples. But that, that ability vanished, didn't it, when he himself was conquered. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, we find there that our fundamental identity as believers is that we're justified. We're declared to be righteous in Christ. We, we are crucified and risen with him. So I have three major points today I want to argue from these verses. First, we're justified by faith alone instead of by works. We're justified by faith alone instead of by works. Secondly, relying on our works reveals our true selves. Relying on our works reveals our true selves. And third, our identity is in Christ crucified and risen. Our identity is in Christ crucified and risen. But I want to back up and I want to start at verse 11 because that's the context of the passage. Peter and Paul are in Syrian Antioch. It's the, it's the third largest city in the Roman world. It's a population of 250,000 people. And about, and about 25,000 Jews, about 10%, lived in the city as well. So many Gentile believers, many Gentiles have become believers in this city. You can read about that in Acts chapter 11. Peter and Paul and the other Jewish Christians were regularly eating meals with Gentile Christians. They were, what, what were they eating? What, why were they eating together? They were probably eating food that was considered to be unclean according to the Old Testament. You can read about that in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. So they're probably eating food that Jews were forbidden to eat in the Old Testament. But, but Peter had a vision in Acts 10 and 11 that said that eating such foods was now in Christ permissible. There, were, there was no problem to eat that food. So an, a new age in redemptive history had begun. That, that separation between Jews and Gentiles 
That was over. The laws that separated Jews from Gentile, especially laws like circumcision, Sabbath, and food laws, those laws and the, and the Mosaic Covenant as a whole had, had passed away. Now, now Jews and Gentiles could sit down, Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus, could sit down and enjoy fellowship with one another. And the best way to enjoy fellowship with people is by eating with them, is it not? And they could sit down and eat together, and they could enjoy pork chops, right, ham, bacon, scallops, shrimp, oysters, so forth and so on. Those were all foods that were unclean according to the Old Testament, but now, now together they could eat those foods. By the way, these, these laws were not given, these foods were not given for health reasons. Otherwise, the New Testament writers wouldn't tell us it doesn't matter if you keep those laws anymore. Because the New Testament is very clear, we're not under those laws, we're not under those prohibitions. But it doesn't make sense, does it, for us to say that New Testament writers don't care about our health. So these laws weren't given for our health. The laws were given originally to separate Jews from Gentiles so that the Jews would be a holy people to the Lord under the old covenant. And, and there's nothing wrong with those laws, right? They were giving, given by God, but they were only designed to be in effect for a certain period of time, for a limited time in redemptive history. And with the coming of Christ, that day, that day was over. So the Jews and Gentiles, they're eating together. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, other Jewish Christians, eating with Gentile Christians, enjoying their fellowship in Christ. But then some men from James came along. Now, now which James is this? It's almost certainly James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, who had a great ministry in the church of Jerusalem his whole life, by the way, James was martyred in A.D. 62. He was put to death. But James sent some men along, and he said some things that alarmed Peter and the other Jewish Christians. We, you know, it's very, it's very brief here in the text, right? Is that verse 12? Where when James comes along, we, we really wish we knew in more detail what exactly, what exactly did these men from James say? But, but maybe, we have to speculate a little bit, maybe they said something like this. Peter and others, all the Jews, even Christian Jews, where we live in Jerusalem, they're, they're scandalized by what you're doing in eating unclean foods with the Gentiles. Our opponents, which are Jewish people, our opponents, Jewish people who aren't Christians, they're saying that Jewish Christians don't care about keeping law. Do you know, Peter, that you're even putting other Jews in danger by doing what you're doing? Uh, when Peter heard this, how did he respond? What does the text say? He was filled with fear. Fear filled his heart. Maybe he worried about what would happen to other Jewish Christians. Maybe he was worried that they would be persecuted and even killed. 
Probably he was worried about what other people thought about him. I mean, here's the great apostle, but probably part of what flooded his heart is what will people think about me? Maybe he was worried about his reputation in Jerusalem. Perhaps he felt a threat in terms of his own identity, who, who he was with other Jewish Christians. So, whatever was filling his heart, we know fear was filling his heart. He quit, he quit eating meals with the Gentiles. He went back to keeping the food laws found in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. And, and Peter was a leader, right? And so he had a great influence on others. As, as the text says, all the other Jewish Christians followed his example. As Paul says, even, even Barnabas, that, that was the deepest cut of all for Paul, right? Because Barnabas was the person who went on that first missionary journey with Paul. And even Barnabas was led astray by Peter. And Paul was, was shocked over what was happening and saddened. And he recognizes that Peter and his friends were guilty of, what does the text say, of hypocrisy. Peter, Peter after all, Acts 10 and 11, wasn't regularly keeping these food laws. And now suddenly he was insisting that the food laws be kept. And that's hypocritical. He, as, as Paul says, you are a Jew, Peter, but you live like a Gentile. You live like a Gentile in what sense? You eat these unclean foods. You, you're living like a Gentile, but now you're requiring the Gentiles to live like Jews, to have fellowship with them. So in effect, what you're saying, Peter, you're, you're in effect saying that, that Gentiles have to live like Jews to be Christians. And that's hypocritical. Paul reproves Peter publicly. And in doing so, he doesn't violate Jesus' command to reprove someone in private first. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18, doesn't he? If someone sinned, you reprove them in private first. But Paul didn't do that. He reproved Peter in front of everyone. Why so? Was Paul's public rebuke of Peter okay? Yes, it was. Because Peter's sin was of a public nature. And it had public consequences. And therefore, it deserved a public rebuke. That's a good rule to follow, isn't it? If a sin has public consequences, it's, public, it's publicly done, then a public rebuke is appropriate. So Paul, Paul sees the truth of the gospel is at stake in this matter of eating. Verses 15 through 21, there's some debate on this, but I believe verses 15 through 21 represent what, what Paul said to Peter. The quotation marks in the Bible, in your Bibles, differ, but I believe verses 15 through 21 are the words Paul said to Peter on that occasion. But they're also the words that the Galatians needed to hear. I, I mean, what's Paul telling the story? He's not just telling the story to tell the story. What he said to Peter is what the Galatians need to hear. And in God's wisdom and providence, they're the words 
we need to hear. They're the words you need to hear. God has preserved these words for us. So that brings me to our first truth in verses 15 and 16. Paul reminds Peter and us that we are justified by faith alone and not by works. Let's look at verse 15. Paul says to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth or by nature and not Gentile sinners. Peter, Paul says, we're Jews. We're Jews by birth. We're Jews by nature. We're, we're not sinners like the Gentiles are. Paul doesn't mean by this that Jews are not sinful at birth. In contrast to Gentiles, Paul doesn't mean by that that Jews are naturally good. Paul doesn't mean by this Jews are born as, as good people. No, he doesn't mean that. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, we are all by nature, you know this verse, we're all by nature children of wrath, and that includes the Jews. Romans chapter 3, no one is good, no, not even one, no one seeks God. So, so what does Paul have in mind here? What Paul has in mind is God's covenant with Israel. So he's saying, Peter, as Jews from the beginning of our lives, from our circumcision on the eighth day, we're, we're born into the covenant. We're, Peter, you and I know we're, we're God's covenant children. We, we Jews, we're the chosen of the Lord. We aren't, we aren't Gentiles, Peter. We aren't Gentiles who have nothing to do with God's covenant. We are God's special children. Peter and Paul agree on that. They're covenant children. But then Paul says what is of massive importance in verse 16. He says, we, we know, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, hey, Peter, look, here's something we know. What do we know? We know that a person, we, look at that word person, or however it's translated. We know a human being. We know human beings aren't justified, I'll come back to that word, by works of the law, but justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that about human beings. And then, this is written really carefully, so we, do you see that we in the text? Look down, look at that for a minute. So we, that is you and I, Peter, we Jews. So it's a person, and now it's we, we Jews, we Jews. Me and you, Peter. And all the other Jews who are listening, we also have believed in Jesus Christ. We Jews, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We're told three times 
that we're not justified in this verse by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The works of the law refer to all the works demanded by the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law, according to account I've read, I've never done this myself, but according to account I read, contains 613 commands. I don't know if that number's right or not, but there's a lot of them, right? 613 commands, we'll say. So the works of the law refers to the entire law, to all the commands in the law. And we aren't justified, Paul says to Peter, and to us, right? We aren't justified by keeping the law. Why not? Well, we're going to see as we keep going because we're all sinners, right? Because we don't keep the law. Why does justification not come by the works of the law? But because we sin. I mean, actually, if we did what the law said, we could be justified by the works of the law. But we don't. We sin. Instead, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, now, what does the word justified mean? The word justified means to be, to be declared to be in the right. That's what a judge does, right? A judge, a judge declares in a trial a, a person to be in the right, not guilty, innocent, if they're charged with a crime, if they're innocent, right? At least we hope that's what a judge does. God, God as a judge, always judges righteously, doesn't he? So to be justified is to be declared to be in the right before God. To be declared to be righteous in his sight. And Paul tells us three times, we're not, we're not declared to be in the right by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. But here's the shocking thing, which you may take for granted, and me too, if you've been a Christian a long time, it's that we're not right with God because of how good we are. We stand in the right before God because of our faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. So when I was first understanding this, Rick told you a little bit about my wife leading me to the Lord. I was raised as a Roman Catholic, and I had nothing against Roman Catholicism. I grew up in a family of, I have seven brothers and sisters. I think it was a very happy home, but I'd never read the Bible, and I, Diane gave me a Bible. I was reading it. I don't even know what I, I mean, I was reading the Living Bible. I don't even know what words I said. I mean, I was so young, but I was reading my Bible. My mom was out reading a book on the couch, which she typically did on, um, in, during the afternoon. I had a great relationship with my mom and my dad. So I was reading my Bible, and I went out to my mom, and I said, you know, Mom, so like I said, I, what did I say exactly? Something like this. Mom, I'm reading the Bible, and the Bible says we're not saved by how good we are. The Bible says we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So how did my mom reply? My mom said, I don't believe that. That's all she said. That was the end of our conversation. My mom was a wonderful mom, but she could be very concise in our conversation. She's like, nope, that's wrong. And you know, I went back to my room and I thought, 
mom's wrong. <laughs> I knew that because I knew my mom wasn't reading scripture and God was sealing his word to my heart. And I understood my mom really doesn't understand. I mean, I couldn't have articulated it this way then. My, my mom really doesn't understand what sin is and she really doesn't understand who God is because God demands perfection because he's infinitely holy. And, and she didn't understand that because she wasn't reading the scriptures. And that's what Paul is teaching here. We realize we're not right before God by working for God, but by trusting in Christ. We're not right before God by, by achieving, right? But, but by believing, not, not, not by performing, but by resting in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We all want our identity to be tied to our accomplishments. We want to be admired for who we are and what we've done. But the gospel says no. No to that. The gospel says your ethnic background doesn't save you. Your race doesn't save you. You're not accepted before God because of what you do. Even if we know the gospel, we may be trying to prop up our fragile egos by how successful we are in our career. Are you doing that? How good our kids turn out? How good our marriage is? How good, how good you are at sports or, or whatever it is? How smart you are? But the gospel says these are all false gods. Our acceptance comes from trusting in Christ. And Paul says to Peter, you're slipping away from that, Peter. You don't realize what you're doing fully, but you're slipping away. Second truth. We see in verses 17 and 18 that relying on our works reveals our true selves. Relying on our works reveals our true selves. So Paul's continuing his conversation with Peter, starting in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too, that's you and me, Peter, right? We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. These are very controversial verses. I don't have time to go through different explanations. I'm, so I only have time to explain to you how I understand it. But they're a bit hard to understand. But I think we can make sense of them if we see that Paul continues his conversation with Peter. And of course, he includes that conversation for the sake of the Galatians and for our sake as well. So in verse 17, we learn that the Jews... And turning to Christ for salvation, admitted that they were sinners before God. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found, found before God legally. I think that's, that word found is a legal term. We're found before God to be sinners. They're admitting, Jews are admitting, they couldn't be right before God by their obedience. They couldn't be saved by the law. Why not? Well, here it is, right? We're found to be sinners. We too as Jews, we're admitting that. Well, does that make Christ 
a servant of sin. Is it Christ's fault then? When, when Paul says, when our sins as Jews are exposed as sin, is that actually Christ's fault? And the answer is, of course not. That's ridiculous. It's not Christ's fault. Christ doesn't make us sinners. He, he reveals, right, who we really are. He exposes who we truly are. That's what happens. So that brings us to verse 18, where he speaks of rebuilding what has been torn down. What has been torn down, what has been torn down is the law, the Mosaic Covenant. Rightly so, right? Those laws that separated Jews and Gentiles have passed away. We're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant and the law of Moses. That doesn't mean there aren't moral norms in our lives, right? That's another discussion for another day, which Rick will handle and has handled many times, I'm sure. But we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant and the law of Moses. A new day has come in Jesus Christ. So what happens if we rebuild what's been torn down? That's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to rebuild what's been torn down by making the Gentiles observe the food laws to be part of the people of God. You see what he's doing? He's rebuilding that covenant again. And Peter's, in effect, saying to the, to the Gentiles, you've got to observe the law to be part of God's covenant people. If I rebuild what I tore down, that is, the Mosaic covenant that's passed away, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If we rely on the law... As Peter is doing in requiring the food laws, it will be clear to all that we are the transgressors. The reinstitution of the law will make it clear to all that we can't keep the law, that we transgress the law, that we are sinners. So do you see what Paul is saying to Peter? We can't rely on the law to save us. If you require the law... As a way to salvation, your own sin will be exposed. So what does this mean to us? Even after we are Christians, it is tempting to derive our fundamental identity from what we do and what we accomplish. We may, as Paul says in Galatians 3, begin in the spirit and then attempt to be perfected in the flesh, we, we may forget the gospel and start listening to another message. And in that other message, we construct our fundamental identity, who we are, even our relationship with God, on our accomplishments. But Paul reminds us, returning to the law as the basis of your relationship to God will only expose our own sin and our own fallenness. Here's another way to put it. One reason we feel so fragile about our identity, and that's all of us in here, including me, one reason we see so, feel so fragile about our identity is because we're fallen. In other words, there's something in and of ourselves there's something terribly wrong with each one of us. And that's called sin, isn't it? 
The reason we feel, one reason we feel bad about ourselves is because we're bad. <laughs> we think of uh, Shakespeare's play Macbeth, one of my favorites, where Lady Macbeth, after being an accomplice to the murder of King Duncan, keeps washing her hands. Do you remember that scene? Some of you know that play. She's trying to remove the evil she's done as she's sleepwalking, but she can't do it. And she sleepswalk, and she sees blood on her hands, and she exclaims, what does she say? Remember, out, damned spot, out, I say. She's white, right, by the way, isn't she? The blood on her hands because of sins leads to damnation, doesn't it? It's no light thing. And we can't, we can't get it out on our own. We can't wash away our own sins. And we're really all the same as Lady Macbeth. Our personhood, our very identity is affected by our sin. If we really know ourselves, if you really know yourself, we feel a sense of shame, a deep sense of shame about our sin. So our problem with identity, what's Paul saying to Peter here? Peter there's something terribly wrong with us, even if we're covenant children as Jews. The world tries to solve this problem. We see this every day if you listen to the news. I listen, I, I listen to NPR a lot, so I hear this often. I mean, the news is often very interesting on NPR. But, and this is not the only venue in which we hear this. The world tries to solve this problem by telling us lies. Actually, actually, we can understand the world's motivation. The world wants us to feel better about ourselves. The world wants us to be happy and well-adjusted. Good, good motives in that sense. And it thinks the answer is to say, you're good the way you are. Deep down inside, the real you is beautiful. That's what the world says. And there's a, it's a partial truth, isn't it? Because we're made in the image of God. And in that sense, as Francis Schaeffer used to always say, in that sense, we're magnificent, aren't we? We're magnificent because we're made in God's image. There's something grand and amazing about human beings. Every person is significant. Every person matters. I mean, I've been deeply influenced by Schaefer and Schaefer's little commentary in the Gospel of Luke. Do you remember the title, some of you? No Little People. I love that title. Everybody matters. Everybody's made in God's image. But the gospel also exposes the lie the world tells us. And that lie is that we're good, that we're beautiful just the way we are, that we don't need to change, that we just need to embrace who we are. But since we're sinners and fallen, since that's the truth about us, that, that lie the world tells us will never make us happy because we know if we're honest with ourselves and if we're listening to God, we know there's something terribly wrong with us. Now, no matter how often people tell us you're beautiful just the way you are, 
So Paul says, relying on the law to establish your identity, it doesn't work because the law, relying on your accomplishments, it only shows that you failed. And the gospel offers another solution. And it is this, God in Jesus Christ reaches out in love and forgiveness, even though you have deeply failed. Perhaps you're an unbeliever here today and you've never heard this good news. And this good news is for you. God knows everything about you. All the terrible things you've done, all the shameful things you have thought about, and he loves you. He doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because you're beautiful. He loves you because he loves you. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He loves you out of pure grace. He loves you for the glory and honor and praise of his own name. That's the bottom, isn't it? He loves you because it brings him delight to love you for the praise of his name. That's the gospel. It's a much deeper and greater gospel than the one the world gives us. Thirdly, our third truth is in verses 19 through 21. Our identity is in Christ crucified and risen. So we see here we're justified when we are united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. Our righteousness isn't in ourselves, but in Christ crucified and risen. To enjoy life, we must die and be raised from the dead. We begin with death. Paul says in verse 19 that through the law, he died to the law. The best commentary on verse 19 is Romans chapter 7, verse 4, where Paul says you have you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And I think the body of Christ here stands for his death, showing that believers died to the law through the death of Christ. I, th I think Paul probably means the same thing here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Believers have died to the law when they've died with Christ. If that's so... The words, I have been crucified with Christ, represent the same truth. We come into the world as sons and daughters of Adam. And the best evidence of this is what? Well, G.K. Chesterton said that original sin is the most empirically verifiable of all Christian doctrines. And we see it in our own lives, but we see it in our children, don't we? Our children are naturally sinners. So what do we need to be new? We need to, what does Paul say, us here, say here? We need to die. So praise God that for those of us who trust in Christ's death and resurrection, his death is your death. His resurrection is your life. We're no longer identified by our sin, but by our new life in Jesus Christ. We, we're new now. So you see how this relates to our identity. Our identity is in Christ. Paul says in verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So he has a new identity now. Paul doesn't mean that he doesn't have a personal existence anymore. He's not saying 
that we're mystically swallowed up in Christ as if we don't have any personal identity. His point is that the old I, the old Adam, the unregenerate person has been put to death. Our identity has been changed. As Paul says in Colossians, Christ is our life now. And Christ lives in us by his spirit. We have a new power. We are new persons. We are enabled to live a new life by Christ living in us. We are the branches. He is the vine. What does our life look like in our new identity? We don't always feel like we're new because we live in between the times. Because we live in the already but not yet. We're already new and yet we still struggle with the old. We still have mortal bodies. We still face the continuing presence of sin in our lives. We have not yet experienced the resurrection from the dead. So we live, Paul tells us in verse 20, doesn't he? He says we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We don't live by what we see and by what we feel, but we live by faith. We trust that what God says about our identity is the truth. Our feelings are not the truth, but God's word is the truth. So if we doubt God's love for us, we look to the cross. Verse 20 says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. You can put your name in there, can't you? If you feel worthless about yourself, if you're tempted to despise yourself, remind yourself again and again of this truth, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Or if you feel like you're a great person and you don't need that, we need to be reminded of verse 21. What does Paul say in verse 21? I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. We can't erect our identities on what we do, or otherwise Christ's death was for no purpose. We are what we are by the grace of God. Otherwise, Jesus would not have to die, would he? So our identity and our righteousness is in Jesus Christ. But even after we're Christians, we struggle with who we are since we're tempted to secure our identity in what others think of us and in what we think of ourselves. I want to close by telling the story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Christian. Bonhoeffer was imprisoned by the Nazis, and he was executed about a week or 10 days before the Allies uh, liberated Germany. So Bonhoeffer wrote a poem about identity titled, Who Am I? He wrote this poem about a month before he was put to death. When he wrote this poem, he was in prison struggling with his identity, with who he really was. On the outside, other people who saw him, he seemed calm and collected and at peace. But then Bonhoeffer knew 
what he was experiencing inside, his own feelings of his own life, they were quite different. What he, what he was feeling inside were remarkably different from what other people were saying about him. And he was asking himself, who am I anyway? Am I what other people think about me? Or am I what I feel about myself? So the poem's a little bit long, but I think it's worth quoting. Here's what he says. Who am I? They often tell me that I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I would talk to my warden freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I would bear the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell me of? Or, or am I only what I know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, trembling with anger at despotisms and petty humiliation, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends, at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army? fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, you know, O oh God, I am yours. Do you see what Bonhoeffer is saying? What matters is not what others think about us, and even our own feelings about ourselves are not the ultimate truth. Who are we? God knows who we are. He knows the truth. And we don't put our trust in what others think about us. We don't put our trust in what we feel about ourselves. We put our trust in God's Word. And if you're a believer, we are accepted before God by faith. We are justified before God by faith in Jesus Christ. We are a new creation, crucified and risen with Christ. We are his beloved children. Let's pray.